So uh, Acts chapter 11, we're going to get going before it gets too warm here today. And I titled today, Continue, Continue, dot, 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 on purpose. All right, continue on purpose. We're going to see in the latter part of Acts 11 that that's an exhortation or an encouragement that Barnabas will give the Christians in Antioch. Uh, as we work through the text today, Acts 11, verse 19, and let's pray over our time in the Word. Oh Lord, so good to be here today with my brothers and sisters, um, to come into the parking lot here at the fields, and just, I think I took the last parking spot, the very end, and to just see all of these um, souls gathered together in the name of Jesus, to perhaps uh, meet you, to perhaps know you, Lord. And really, there's no perhaps about it, Lord. You're the one that's been in pursuit of us since before the foundations of the world. And and so we, with faith, open our hearts up to you and just say, speak to us, touch us, convert us, Lord, today. As we're just going to see that word uh, that we would be converted and turned to you. Some for the first time today, they would be converted and and become Christians today. Some have been followers of yours for quite some time, but just need a fresh, fresh turning of their face to you. So do that in our midst today. All that's in your heart for these people in Primeville, work in the power of your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 19, going on through the rest of the chapter today, continue on purpose. Uh, Luke is going to give us some insight into the persecution that arose over Stephen. Clear back at the end of chapter 7, going into chapter 8, we remember Stephen was the first church martyr. And chapter 8 tells us that great persecution arose over the church by the hands of Saul, and the church was scattered uh, all throughout kind of the region of Israel and the surrounding regions. And so... um, Luke, the author, gives the readers two vignettes. I read today the word vignettes, and I was like, "Mm, I love a good vignette salad dressing. Or go to Olive Garden and dip my bread in the garlic and vignette. Ah, yes. So Luke gives his readers two vignettes, which I had to Google. Turns out it's not that vinegary sauce. It's a brief evocative description account or episode ah yes evocative (laughs) Ah. so I googled the word evocative (laughs) this went on for quite some time it was really a vicious cycle and that's as far as I got uh, this week so have the worship team come back up and Uh, it's funny because it's it's true (laughs) so anyways an evocative description brings strong images to mind alright so that's what uh, the, the writer Luke is doing here in two stories in chapter 11 the first story is the conversion of the first Gentile through Peter 
And then the latter part of the chapter here in verse 19 are the systematic evangelization of the Gentiles. So first Gentile getting saved, and now there's this really purposeful evangelization, systematic moving throughout geographic locations. Uh, and that's going to now begin uh, with uh, Paul the Apostle. Uh, but before we really get into that, that's going to be in verse uh, chapter 13, where Paul really takes on that mission movement. Our text today depicts the expansion of the church northwards. If you have, uh, you, know, you can Google it on your phone or you can look in the back of your Bible, just a map of Israel. Or uh, as I was studying yesterday, I typed in Acts 11 map. Okay, and that's just going to help you today to, to look at that and see some of the geography we're going to see. But uh, there's going to be missionary movement north of Israel up past Damascus, which is where Saul was converted and ministered by Ananias there in chapter 9. The gospel is going past even that up into Lebanon, up into the regions of what's Turkey today in a place called Antioch we'll read about. But I like what John Stott said, that this northward missionary movement was a result of evangelistic activity by anonymous missionaries. And I like that. You know, we read about Paul and Barnabas and Silas and, of course, the apostles. And those are the big name guns, right? The big name guys. But really, by chapter 11, we have missionary movement already happening by guys, we don't even know their names. By guys that are just you and me, right? Just out and about, about their daily life with a heart that anyone that comes across their path, they might open up their mouths and make known the mystery of the gospel. And so, uh, so that gets us into verse 19 here that those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So get that Bible map out. You'll see Phoenicia is up in modern-day Lebanon, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Cyprus is an island 100 miles off the coast in the Mediterranean. When we go to Israel in November, we're going to fly over the island of Cyprus. You see the whole island from the airplane, and you, you just go open up your Bible on the plane, and you read about Cyprus and what Paul did in missionary movement of Cyprus. You read about Cyprus here, and you just look at that island, and you know somewhere on that island, uh, this great missions movement happened in the book of Acts. And, and then we have Antioch which by chapter 13 is going to become the missionary headquarters of the church. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And interesting, Antioch would be an influence to Rome itself. So already by uh, chapter 11, there's a 300-mile radius spread of the gospel. God is working all things together for the good, including the persecution that happened in chapters 7 and 8. And it says that uh, there were believers there who were preaching the word. Amen. We love that, preaching the word. But there was one little issue. It was to the Jews only that they were preaching the word. And so chapters 10 and 11 have, have addressed that problem and informed us that, all right, there's got to be a thrust out of just the circle of Judaism with the gospel 
out into the rest of the world, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, that all the nations need to hear all the things that I've commanded. All the nations need to be converted and made disciples. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And uh, it's from Antioch that this big mission field really starts to the Gentiles and then spreads out to the Gentiles. Now, uh, Antioch uh, has an island, or it, it was early on an island, uh, that was in the middle of the Orontes River. Uh, it was about oh, 30 miles inland off the Mediterranean Sea. So the Orontes River feeding the Mediterranean, going up into Turkey, Lebanon, and having an island right in the middle of the river. Uh, that island had a huge palace and a hippodrome. Hippodrome, uh, if you've ever seen Ben-Hur and the giant coliseums with the chariot races, uh, that's what a hippodrome is. We'll be in Caesarea in November, and we'll, we'll go to an ancient hippodrome where the chariot races were uh, in Caesarea. But here there was a hippodrome uh, in Antioch that was in the middle of an island, in the middle of a river. There were bridges that connected the island to the main city in Antioch. And uh, that first century city of Antioch contained an aqueduct, bathhouses, two theaters, temples, uh, a pagan worship to Artemis and uh, Heracles. It had a pantheon. Uh, it had a basilica that was dedicated to an imperial cult. So prior to Paul's arrival, there was a giant earthquake in 37 BC that had devastated uh, Antioch, but Caligula helped rebuild the city. Uh, Antioch would periodically host Olympic-style games. It had a main road that went through the city that had columnades on both sides of it. It was marble paved, and all of that building was done uh, by Herod the Great in sponsorship. So just a really beautiful big city with a lot of action, a lot of activity, a lot of paganism. Uh, third in size in the Roman Empire uh, in its day. Antioch had a reputation for moral laxity. It was an immoral city, second only to Corinth, kind of the Las Vegas of, of our day. Every Greek god was worshipped in Antioch, especially Daphne, who was seduced by Apollos. It's an immoral story. And there, so there were all kinds of sexual practices associated uh, with worshipping her. One might say that Jerusalem was all about religion. Rome was all about power. Alexandria, Egypt was all about intellect. Athens was all about philosophy. But then Antioch was all about business and immorality. So when the gospel came to Cornelius, he became a follower of Jesus. It came to a man that was already a God-fearer. He had a respect for the God of Israel. He had a moral life. We read of him in chapter 10. But when the gospel came to Antioch, it came to an utterly pagan city. But there, be, there was a revival by chapter 11. It just shows us that God can take a dark, wicked culture and use that as a backdrop for the glorious, beautiful diamond of the gospel to be put on display. By verse 20, it says, Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene 
who when they came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists were Greeks or they were Gentiles. We read of Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews in chapter 6. Um, but the New English Bible calls them pagans. All right, so they spoke to the pagans. So some of the missionaries, they were just speaking to the Jews only. And then some of these guys, as they got saved, they started sharing the gospel with the non-Jews, with the pagans. And they were preaching the Lord Jesus. You might underline that. Preaching the Lord Jesus. The word preaching, I, I believe it was Tim Chaddock that said, and he may have been quoting Stott in uh, Between Two Worlds, if I remember reading this, but uh, he said, preaching is to address or advice with urgency or earnestness, to communicate something in such a way that you bring it to bear on that person's heart. You're putting, you're putting the message on that person. You're putting the message on that person. It has nothing to do with how loud you are or how soft you are. That's not preaching. Preaching is when you bring the word of God to bear on a person's heart. That's what I often pray about coming to a Sunday morning. Lord, bring the word to bear. Press it into our hearts. And these men were preaching. Who were they preaching? The Lord Jesus. It shows us Christ-centered preaching, the centrality of Jesus in preaching. Preaching the Lord Jesus. The Greek terms Lord uh, is uh, kurios, kurios, and then uh, soter, or savior, were widely current in religions of the Middle East. It was actually a common phrase, but to combine them together, F.F. Bruce says, was a new and radical thing, that there was one named Jesus who wasn't just a Lord or a master, he was also a savior, one that would redeem us of our sins. And, and Peter says when he preaches in the book of Acts that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, both both Kyrios and Christos, Lord and Savior. And you know that that's his desire for you, that he would be your Lord and Savior. For most of us, I've found in ministering in Primeville, people love that Jesus is a Savior of our sins. They know they've got sins and they know they need them to be washed away, but they don't love that Jesus has also been made Lord. He's also been made Master, Ruler, not only over the whole world we'll see one day, but over our hearts. Maybe today the Lord would speak to you if he is your Lord or if that's something that's missing in relationship as Lord and Savior. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. These unnamed missionaries, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turn to the Lord. So revival is happening. People are coming to life. Knowing Jesus. Especially among the Greek speaking pagans there. Uh, Stott tells us that Luke. The writer of Acts. May have been one of the converts here. So he's writing the book. Uh, and, and we have it because of him today. But he may be writing his own little story right here. That uh, Some history is that Luke was saved during this revival in Antioch. And then he'll, you'll start seeing more of 
the we's and the personal, uh, um, I hate using the word pronouns here sometimes. So should I pocket that? I don't know. So he'll be saying the word uh, we uh, as he joins in the missionary team with um, Paul and Barnabas and Silas. And, uh, and so he was a part of this uh, work that was happening here. The hand of the Lord was with them. This speaks of major blessing. As uh, I often get to minister to people and see the Lord work in their life, it's just so incredible to watch not only people get saved, but people step into that relationship of Jesus being Lord and Savior, master of their life. They become disciples of Jesus. Uh, They begin following Jesus and they start serving and they're just open to anything the Lord has for them. And oftentimes I'll use the phrase that the hand of the Lord is on their life. And you just, it's almost just a natural thing to just observe on someone. The hand of the Lord is on their life. I look back there and I see Andy Dill. He's an usher today with the vest on. And, and uh, Andy, I just, when I thought of that, I thought of you. And just Andy came to the church about last October, November. And I just met him and um, him and his wife and his kids. They just started pressing in and starting to serve the Lord. And I just when I thought of someone recently that I've just been getting to know, I'm just like, man, I just see the hand of the Lord on Andy's life and, and on his family's life. And today's his first day ushering. I was like, good, nice vest. And he's like, it just feels so good to be serving, you know. And, and so I just see that in so many of you, the hand of the Lord on you. And that is something that as we go out into this world and serving and sharing the gospel and ministering in the church, we can go with confidence that the Lord is with us. We have many blessings from him, the hand of him on us. And uh, what happens when the hand of the Lord is with us in our ministry? A great number believe and are turned to the Lord there. It's something that marked the disciples in Matthew's gospel in chapter 4 the new disciples that Jesus would go and meet by the Sea of Galilee, they would believe, they would repent, they would follow Jesus. There was action, there was forgetting the past and all that was behind and pressing forward to the Lord. Many have used the word converted to speak of this process in a Christian's life. Uh, to be a convert or to convert speaks of turning or maybe even returning and changing one's beliefs to line up that with the beliefs of the Bible. And so here in Antioch, we see many conversions. Psalm 51, after David committed adultery and uh, was praying a prayer of repentance of adultery and murder, he says, after I just am forgiven and am refreshed by the grace of the Lord, I will teach sinners your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. That's, that's the mission of the Lord, is to convert sinners. The world hates that. I've heard it used so negatively. You just want to convert us. It's like, yeah, yep, 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 pretty much. Just as I need conversion. Or Matthew records John the Baptist saying, uh, unless you are converted and become as... Oh, I'm sorry, this is Jesus. I had another quote from John the Baptist. Unless you're converted... And become like little children, you will by no means inherit the kingdom of heaven. So converted and going from just a prideful adult to being just like a little kid that's just like, here I am, Lord. It's like, I got nothing. I'm all snotty-nosed and dirty shirt, and I spilled my lunch all over myself, and 
It's like, here I am, Lord, just use me, change me. Or Peter's sermon in Acts 3, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Have you been converted? Has your life been converted? Have you turned away from the ways of the world? And turned in agreement with the Lord Jesus. And said, you are right, Lord. Have your way in me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Give me a new heart. A new mind. Help me to walk in your ways. I turn to you. Convert me, Lord. Have you ever been converted? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. Today, if you will hear his voice, today you can be converted and you can have your sins blotted out, dabbed out, wiped away. You can have times of refreshing just flow from the throne room of God, from the presence of the Father. So these missionaries just had a great message that brought people to places of conversion in Antioch. In verse 22 Then the history goes on. News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they they had to say, we got to go check this out. See what's going on. Make sure it's a legit work of the Lord. And so they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. And so uh, with... Uh, with great intentionality, they send out this guy, Barnabas, who we've seen already in the book of Acts. He has a nickname. Do you guys know his nickname? The son of encouragement. The son of encouragement. So perhaps a play on his name here. The son of encouragement is going to go out and do some encouraging in this new mission field. The man whom William Barclay called the man with the biggest heart in the church is sent out. And when he sees what happened in Antioch, he was glad. He was glad. He just got there and he saw what was going on and a smile came across his face. He just was full of cheer. He was delighted. And he spoke to them and he encouraged them. There's that play on the words in verse 23. The son of encouragement encourages them. Encourage. Man, it just speaks of stirring up courage in people. My son, uh, Titus, he was born in 2014. We were going through some difficult things in the church. My heart was just kind of heavy and forlorn a bit. And and we were just praying about what's to name our kid. You know, you just always wonder, what do you name your child? And we had a history of our names in the family. Just no our names seemed to work. And just going through and just somehow just the Lord brought us to Titus, who when you read the scriptures, Titus was an encourager. Everywhere he went in the scripture, he was a great encouragement. And then we named his middle name uh, Hart, um, H-A-R-T. And Hart just speaks of encouraging someone, uh, someone that always, you know, take heart be encouraged. So Titus, the encourager, and in that time of our life, he brought great encouragement. And if you've ever met Titus, he's the kid with the little, it's not a mohawk. He tells you it's a faux hawk. Okay. So 
when you see him going around here at the park. If, if you know Titus, he's going to come and he's going to hug you. If he sees you leaving the park without getting a hug, he's going to chase you down, hop up on your running boards of your car, give you some love. He's a little intimate. He, he's going to get in close. Okay, um, It's going to be some snuggles. I'm not going to lie. But uh, just such an encourager, uh, little Titus is. And, and Barnabas, also an encouragement. And here was the encouragement that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. I believe this is the same encouragement for us today. I really, I kind of wrestled. I had this all studied up from last week. I kept studying it this week. Just a short number of verses. And even this morning, I was sitting out on my deck and I was like, oh no, I got, I, I need to go into chapter 12. Oh no, this, this isn't very much. This isn't very many verses. I got to get to chapter 12. We're going in. Oh no. You know, so, okay. We're gonna, and then the Lord was just like, hey. If this message was good enough for Barnabas, it's good enough for you. If this was the message to Antioch, it's the message for Primeville. Just calm down. Sometimes I get like that. I got to do more. And then I do a whole other chapter and we're here till three in the afternoon and we never get very far. Uh, And so here we have the message for us today that with purpose of heart, We would continue with the Lord. The word purpose there speaks of a plan. With a plan in our heart. Our plan in the inner man. We would serve and follow and continue with the Lord. I remember I was in high school when Rick Warren came out with the book, A Purpose Driven Life. You know, and the purpose-driven church, and the purpose-driven marriage, and the purpose-driven pool party, and you're just everything. I was like, ah, the purpose, and I never read it. I just thought it was a little silly. I heard the churches were not reading the Bible. They went and did the purpose-driven life. I remember uh, there was a church split once that my in-laws were a part of, and someone was really mad that my in-laws had chosen one side of the church split, and they sent them a letter, angry. Don't you remember what the purpose-driven life says, you know? And it's like, that became the authority in the church. Was the Now, it may have been a great book. I actually have some respect for Rick Warren. There's been some neat things that he's done for the kingdom. and, and uh, But I, I, I like the title of the book. I got that much going for me, all right? The purpose-driven life. That with purpose of heart, with a plan, we would continue on with the Lord. I ask you right now, what's your plan? Right? What's your one month plan for you and your family to continue on with the Lord? What's your year to the end of the you know the end of the year plan to follow hard after the Lord, after the Lord? You know, like you're in an interview today. Hey, what's your five year plan in growing and being farther along in your relationship with Jesus than you are today? What's your plan? What's your plan to grow in? Understanding the word, comprehending the scripture, knowing the Bible, being a man or a woman of prayer, stepping out and living a life that every day requires faith and trusting in the Lord. What's your plan? If you're going to live for God, it has to be on purpose. It doesn't happen by accident. Just a few weeks ago, I wasn't here, I was gone, but Chris had mentioned um, we were working out before he taught he was telling me, oh, I can't wait to talk about, I've been watching Wyatt Earp, and can't wait to talk about how, you know, Wyatt Earp talks to somebody, you know, and, and tells him, you're not a very deliberate man, aren't you, you know? And, uh, and I know he used that picture there. 
That to be a deliberate man or woman. Are you deliberate in your purpose and in your plan to follow Jesus? Have you made decisions in your heart of what it's going to look like this fall when sports start up? Okay, so we know the pattern, you know, and kind of get through this one month where there's no athletics going on. It's kind of the, the middle of the summer, and now sports are going to start up for our family, and we know that sports often take us away from fellowship, midweeks, gatherings with the church. have been learning through the book of Acts that the early church was always in fellowship with each other. Man, when the sports come along, hunting season's coming up. Oh, man, I just love to just disappear and just be gone and Everywhere that I've served in the church all year, no, I'm gone. No serving for me for the next three months. I'm out. You know, hunting season. This is my time. You know, uh, football season. This is my time. You know, uh, whatever it may be. This is you know, and, and we just lose all purpose in our walk with the Lord. But right now, it's so good. You can get together with your family and say, so how are we going to be purposeful when this next busy season comes up? We're still going to be in fellowship. We're still going to be serving. We're still going to be looking at ways to be encouraging. You know, we're still going to be in the word. Uh, you know, how have you been deliberate, purposeful, intentional? Continuing with the Lord. One of the just great memory verses of all time is Daniel chapter one, verse eight. Daniel had been taken captive and taken to Babylon with his buddies. And, and uh, as just a, a, just a solid Jew, he was brought all kinds of, uh, as he was a servant in the new king's palace, he was brought all kinds of delicacies to eat and delicious foods. But some of those foods, those were offered up already on an altar of paganism. And then they were brought to him to eat. And he could not in good conscience partake of these idolatrous uh, foods. And so Daniel 1.8, it's been a memory verse of mine since high school. But Daniel purposed in his heart. That he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. How about you? Have you purposed in your heart that you won't defile yourself with the delicacies of the world that are out there today? Perhaps today just a fresh purposing needs to happen. You can write in your notes and write in your journal today. Put a, you know, for me, I, something for me with purposefulness. We were laughing yesterday because I've just started utilizing S-I-R-I. -I. Can't say it. He's listening. You know, uh, and I'll just say, remind me this, you know, and then I'll, I'll edit the um, intentionality level or whatever to three exclamation points. You, you do one exclamation point like, eh, I don't really care. It's two exclamation points. Like, it's got to get done in the next month. Three exclamation points is like, we got to do this thing tomorrow morning, Right. And, you know, maybe today you'd be like, hey, Siri, remind me by tomorrow at 9 a.m. to follow the Lord with great intention. Okay, your reminder is set for tomorrow at 9 a.m. She doesn't say it. Yeah, 9 a.m. Right now it's a zero exclamation point, so we'll see if I get to it. But, um, <laughs> with purpose of heart purpose of our inner man we've got a plan to follow the lord to continue with the lord some of you here you're i can't believe you're still preaching out of the new king james version i'm king james only well those of you here today that are king james only you'll love that it says cleave to the lord 
with purpose of heart, cleave to the Lord, continue with the Lord, hold on tight to the Lord. Just as a husband and wife in Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And that's what the gospel has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made us one with him. Purpose in your heart today that you're going to cling to the Lord and have intimate relationship with Jesus and know him deeply. Alistair Begg says, what is our greatest danger we face? Defection, deflection, diversion, going through the motions, losing our hearts, becoming legalists, devoid of love, procedurally correct. Devoid of any sense of passion. That's what happens when you start drifting away from the Lord. Hebrews chapter 2 says, We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Lest we drift away. To be washed away or to just flow away or slip away. Hebrews tells us that's a danger for people who call themselves Christians is that if they're not purposeful in heart and they're not giving urgent, diligent heed to the things that they've learned, they'll drift away. You will drift away. I have seen dear friends of mine drift away because those three-month plans to just go off and live for self turn into three-year plans to go off and live for self. And it's really hard to come back. Amen? Anybody been there? Anybody know anybody? Like, just drift away? It's a danger to drift away. So with great purpose of heart, maybe as you're driving out of here today, just set that reminder in your phone to just go through your life and take stock Count the cost. Consider how you're going to, with purpose of heart, live for Jesus and continue with him. So Barnabas spoke that encouragement, and he was easy to listen to. Verse 24 says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He's a good guy. Great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas, he's a bit of an unsung hero compared to the other apostles, It's important to know that the ministry doesn't rise or fall based on a man. When I was uh, just about to move here, I was at an elders retreat uh, uh, with the Corvallis elders. We were at the coast and we had rented this big lodge. And I went upstairs in the lodge and Rob was talking to a couple guys and he goes, Rory, the Lord didn't need Moses and he doesn't need you. It's like, that was so encouraging. I mean... (laughs) You know, and then they all just laugh. But it's like, you know, the Lord, Moses misrepresented. The Lord hit the rock twice. And, and the Lord was like, you know what? That's not how I would need. That's not the leadership that I need representing me as we go into the land. Um, you're not you're not going in. That's that's sobering, isn't it? Uh, Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. And, you know, just like one of our kids that we say, that's it. You're not going to the movie with your friends. And then what do they do? Oh, I'll do better. Oh, oh, I'll do that. Oh, oh, no, no. And they just keep asking, please, I mean, can I, go to, can I go to the movie with my friends? Don't ask me again. I'm done talking about it. And the Lord actually said that to Moses. A ministry doesn't rise or fall on a man. This is not Rory's church. 
this is the Lord's church and we got lots of faithful servants here that keep it going. It does pretty well when I'm not here. You probably noticed that this summer. But Barnabas was someone that there seems to be something special happen wherever he's happening. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And these people were added to the Lord, not apart from the ministry of Barnabas. There's the word for there that says there's a direct correlation between his character and his encouragement. F.F. Bruce said, the presence of a man of such sterling character and faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit, gave them the stimulus they needed to procure their, uh, prosecute their evangelism still more vigorously, and the number of converts increased rapidly. The word added is used there. And uh, it, it's the Greek word, uh, see if I had it, oh, prostithemy, which proposes the word prosthetics. You know, uh, uh, and even old missionary, they call them missiologists, guys that study missionary movements, used to define missionary movements with the word prosthetics. Uh, and nowadays we know it as that um, surgical replacement of limbs and organs, right? Uh, but back in the day, it used to mean more of just any sort of addition. And so this mission movement is seeing the prosthetics of more and more people added to the church. And we might also comment that the additions were not just to the church, but added to the Lord. Acts chapter 2 tells us that many were, um, how's it say? It's Acts chapter 2, it's the last 48 or something. It says, uh, and those, man, it's such a familiar verse, and then now it's blanking on me. Um, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And there's this great saying that the Lord didn't add them to the church without saving them. And the Lord didn't save them without adding them to the church. If you're a Christian, you're a part of a local church. It was true in Jerusalem, and it was true in Antioch, and it's true in Prineville. Get plugged into a local body, friends. And then verse 25, Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. So the son of encouragement travels to find his brother who's been spending some time in obscurity being taught by the Lord. We see in chapter 9 verses 26 and 27 that Barnabas was always such an encouragement to Saul. In verse 26, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And, uh, and so you can just imagine... Barnabas is there, there's this new work happening, he's serving, he's teaching, and it's becoming a lot for him, and he probably, you know, sometimes in leadership you have these thoughts where you're like, you know who would be really helpful in this mission field, in this work right now? Saul. I gotta go get that guy, where's he even been? He's just been off serving in obscurity, being taught personally by the Lord for a while. I had this epiphany uh, last summer. When uh, my good friend Chris Cross was uh, just, the Lord was leading him to Oregon and he didn't know where and just was looking all over. Where would the Lord have me start a church? And just the more and more we were just praying and thinking about what the Lord is doing in this church and the needs here. Just all of a sudden it was like, you should ask Chris if he would come and serve here at Calvary and Prineville. And it was so just one of those like, ah, he'll probably say no, you know. And uh, just 
just called him, gave him, gave him the thought, threw that in front of him. And so thankful that the Lord has led him and Michelle and Claire here to this church. It's just been so helpful in the work, just like uh, Saul was going to be here for um, Barnabas. And ask you the question, Barnabas and Saul in Antioch, who do you think did most of the speaking and teaching? Probably Saul, if we know their relationship. It was Bang that says, it takes a big guy who can realize someone else's bigger guy who should do the bulk of the recognizable work, and that may mean I'll need to be quiet much of the time. We cannot help but admire Barnabas's humility to share the ministry with Saul, and also his sense of strategy, knowing Saul was called to be the apostle of the Gentiles. So he brought him for the work there. R. Kent Hughes says, because of all of this, Antioch became a center for great teaching and preaching. Antioch, quote, had the greatest preachers in the first century, Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. In the second century, Ignatius and Theophilus. In the third and fourth, Lucian, Theodore, Chrysostom, and Theoradet became a great place of teaching and preaching. We see that in chapter 3. And then there's this phrase at the end of this verse, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In chapter 6, we were, we were called disciples. Christians were called disciples. In chapter 9, we were called saints. <clears throat> in chapters 1 and 9, we're called brethren or sistren. In chapter 5, we are called witnesses. In chapter 10, we're believers. In chapter 2, we are those being saved. In chapter 9, we're called the way, which in the 1970s became a huge cult. So, you know, be careful. Okay. And now a new name is given. A new name is given. The public of Antioch was famed for their wit and their nicknaming skills. And these Gentiles supposed that Christ was a proper name. Oh, his name is Jesus Christ. And a lot of the Gentile world, that became like Jesus' name, Jesus Christ, rather than the title that we know it to be. And there are some thought that it became kind of a, a mocking term, uh, that they were joking and calling them Christians, you know. But other sources say that it might have been a more of familiar name that they began to have, even among the Gentiles, rather than jocular or derisory. It seems that the name Christian didn't catch on right away. It appears only two more times in the New Testament. Uh, so it doesn't seem like it was that big of a nickname at the time. But it emphasizes that Jesus is the center or a Christ-centered nature of discipleship. We read in chapter 6 about, uh, oh, we, read, we have read about Herodians. We've read about uh, I'm saying it wrong because it's written in, uh, in the Greek here. So Caesarinans, <laughs> I'm totally butchering that, which were Caesar's people. And now we're reading of Christians. Three times in the New Testament, in Latin, anything ending with I-A-N meant the party of. 
So for Christians, a Christian was of the party of Jesus. Christian was kind of like saying Jesusites or Jesus people, describing people who are associated with Jesus. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce thinks the idea was that they were called Christ ones. I've heard the phrase Christians speaks of little Christs. Wherever these little guys go, they're a little reflection of Jesus. In Antioch, may have been used to mock Christians by calling this this. They were famous for being ready to jeer and call names in witty epigrams, a man, a historian writes. But the Jesus people began to appreciate the title so much that it stuck. We're Christians. Henry Ironside was traveling to China years ago, and he used to be introduced all around China as Yasu Yan. He first didn't know what the word meant, so he asked about it and found out that Yasu was the Cantonese word for Jesus, and Yan meant man. So he had been introduced all around uh, China as the Jesus man. And uh, I wonder if you guys would have a name like that around your workplace and around the community. I know that in uh, Polina last year at the 4th of July celebration, there was a cornhole tournament. And Marcus Rossi, just a, a kind of a newer, outspoken Jesus freak out there, and Joe Papinaw were on a cornhole team. And the other guys in the community called them like the Jesus freaks or the Bible thumpers or something like that. And it might have been an ingest a little bit, but the name stuck. And they're like, that's us. You know, we're the Bible thumpers. We're the Jesus freaks. We love Jesus. How about you? Are you an imitator of Christ? Eusebius, the famous church historian, described a believer named Sanctus. He was from Lyons, France. Sanctus would be tortured for Jesus. And as they tortured him cruelly, they hoped to get him to say something evil or blasphemous. And so they asked asked him his name and he replied, I am a Christian. So they said, what nation do you belong to? He answered, I am a Christian. What city do you live in? I am a Christian. And so his questioners began to get angry. Are you a slave or a free man? I'm a Christian. His only reply was, I'm a Christian. And no matter what they asked him, that was his reply. This made his tortures all the more determined to break him. But they could not. And he died with the words, I am a Christian on his lips. Eusebius writes of that account. Are you a Christian? If you see little Tatum running around today, my little girl, uh, she, for her kindergarten talent show, she told the story of the Christian horse. A Christian horse? What's a Christian horse? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Go talk to Tatum and ask her, tell, tell you the story. You're going to want to get like 15 people around to hear it. It's going to be great. It'll be dramatic. <laughs> Ephesians 5.1 tells us, To be imitators of God as dear children. Be little Jesuses out in the world. Alexander the Great was informed of a soldier in his army who would run and hide in times of battle. And when the soldier was brought before him, Alexander said, what is your name? The soldier replied, Alexander. And Alexander the Great responded, Either change your ways or change your name. (laughs) 
Are you a Christian? What's your behavior in this world? Are you living as a little Jesus out there? Or as one who is of the party of Christ? If not, either change your ways or change your name. Wrapping up very quickly, we'll have the worship team come on up. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. You guys read the book of Acts, you see that there's a place for prophecy in the early church. You read the New Testament epistles, there's a place for prophecy in the church. Now there are great parameters for prophecy, but there's a place nonetheless. Do not despise prophecy, Paul would say. Uh, but there are wonderful and safe guidelines for that gift. And uh, the pulse is a great place uh, for prophecies and words of knowledge and spiritual gifts to be used on Saturday nights. But uh, prophets would come to Antioch from Jerusalem. And 28, one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Uh, so that famine did happen in those days of Claudius Caesar, just like Agabus said. You're going to see Agabus later on in the book of Acts. He's going to take Paul's belt and wrap it around his wrist. And he's going to say, the one to whom this belt belongs is going to be uh, imprisoned in Jerusalem. And uh, interesting thing about prophecy in the book of Acts, it doesn't have the same dynamic um, authority as it does in, say, Old Testament uh, you don't quite see the same response to the prophecies in the New Testament as you do in the Old Testament. And so it's something that's certainly tested and something that is spoken forth with humility, something that brings, 1 Corinthians tells us, uh, great exhortation and encouragement and comfort to men as people would speak forth the heart of God. And Agabus spoke forth that prophecy with the intent to keep Paul from going to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem says... I don't care. I'm going. I'm going down there. Not only to be in prison, but to suffer and die if I have to. Well, Agabus had encouragement, exhortation, comfort to men that there would be some preparation in place for the famine. So verse 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so the disciples stockpiled food and ammunition and threatened to fight anyone who would come in their way and take their food and maybe encroach upon their bunker. That's what they did in response to Agabus's prophecy here. They didn't become preppers. They became servants. Not to say there's not a place for preparation. But they did that. And that they went out and they began to speak of this famine that was going to be happening you read the New Testament, First, uh, Second Corinthians, and you read about, hey, Jerusalem's going to go through a famine. These who have shared with us in spiritual things, it's now our duty to go and to share with them in our physical things. And so the ministry would go out and they would let everyone know there's going to be a famine. And so the early church would set things aside so that Barnabas and Saul could take those things with them on their way back down to Jerusalem and deliver them over for their need. Read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And you see that the Corinthians, they had a big mouth, you know, and they were just kind of like, oh yeah, we'll totally stockpile a bunch of stuff. And Paul knew that they were doing it 
So he writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and he says, hey, I know that you said you were going to do it. And I'm just telling you right now, it'd be a good thing if you really got after it. Because it'd be really embarrassing when I came back through if you guys hadn't done done any of that at that point. I want you guys to look at the Philippians, the Macedonians, and their example of generosity. And this is all, I'm paraphrasing what Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He said, the Philippians, the Macedonians, they, first of all, they gave themselves to the Lord. And then they gave themselves to us. And they gave themselves each in three ways, according to their ability. Do you see that right here? They would give according to their ability. These are three principles of uh, Christian giving. According to their ability. And the Philippians gave themselves beyond their ability. And the third thing, do you guys know it? They were freely willing. So they gave according to their ability. Oh, you know, man, let's see. Uh, so a good biblical principle is, is uh, you know, 30% of my income I'm giving to the Lord. Maybe 10%. Maybe that's the, the floor, not the ceiling that I give from. And, and so on that floor, I'm going to give maybe 10% to the church and another 10% maybe to other ministries that are out there. Uh, I'm going to store up another 10% to get people to various ministry activities. You kind of see this in the Old Testament. 30% giving of generosity. And uh, and so 10% according to our ability. And then beyond my ability. This is when you say, you know what? I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to maybe give up that caramel mocha frappuccino every single day. It's $10. I'm going to start setting that aside so that, you know, these little kids, you know, in Syria aren't, aren't starving or so that they have medical help or something like that. And one great phrase was that in doing that, I'm going to feel the squeeze on my life so that others don't have to feel the pinch. Yeah, feel a squeeze when I give up that caramel mocha frappuccino. But there's a little kid out there that he doesn't even have anything to eat today. And so we see that principle of great generosity. Last little thing here. I'm sure glad the worship team came up. It didn't take long. It was like one guy. Boom, here he is. James Montgomery Boyce said, As far as I know, this is the first charitable act of this nature in all recorded history. Isn't that crazy? The first charitable act of of its nature in all of history. One race of people collecting money to help another people. No wonder they were first called Christians at Antioch. Will you guys stand with me today? close in song Johnny studying the great goodness of the Lord like a well running over and that he's loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life and today we studied the conversion of the people in Antioch They were new converts, turning to the Lord, turning from their ways, 
what they thought was right in their own sight and turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, your ways are right and true and good. Have your way in me. Maybe that's you here today that the Lord has called you to this place to be converted, to become a Christian, someone who's in the party of Jesus. Maybe today as you heard preaching happen, that word was pressed into your heart and you just felt the Lord's nearness and you just felt the Lord speaking right to your heart. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And today in this amphitheater, there was a, a knocking happening. Some have said it, it's on the door of your heart. There's a painting, perhaps you've seen it, a famous painting of Jesus standing outside of a home, knocking. And when this painting was unveiled, a man came up to the artist and said, you've made a great error. You painted the door, but there's no doorknob. And the man said, I did that on purpose. The door has to be open from the inside. And we know God's plan, that God is working. God is sovereign in salvation today. He's powerfully here next to you, knocking on the door of your heart, saying, be converted. Be converted, and times of refreshing will flow from God's throne, and all of your sins will be blotted out. And today, if you would, inside your life, just open up your heart and say, come in, Jesus. Then Revelation 1 tells us, Jesus says, I will come into you, and I will dine with you, and you with me. So I just want to ask today, I want to give you an opportunity to come to Jesus, to open the door of your heart. Where you're at today, I want to ask you to lift up your hand if that's you. I want to ask you to lift up your hand and just respond to the Bible and say, man, that Bible was pressed into my heart today. And I know that the Lord sees me and right now I'm unconverted and my sins were not blotted out, I know that I'm going to perish in my sins if I were to die today. But I want my sins blotted out. And you know what? My life has not been a life of refreshing. My life and the way that I've been living, it has just been torture. Man, I've been living my way and it is just rough and Man, I've got everything that I would want in life that my flesh would desire and I'm still not happy. I still can't sleep at night. I still make my bed swim with just a conscience that's guilty. And I need times of refreshing upon my life and upon my family. I need to be converted today. Is there anybody... We read today in Acts 11 that God added to the church those who were being saved. Somehow they knew that people were coming to Jesus. And today we want to know, you want to come to Jesus today? Lift your hand up real high. I'm not going to call you out or anything, but I'm going to pray over you uh, from here. Anybody at all? 
sins blotted out. Conversion of heart and mind. Times of refreshing flowing from the presence of the Lord. choice because I just assume, hey, we're all Christians then. Isn't that incredible? If you're not a Christian today, man, I beg of you to consider letting Jesus have all of you. All of your goodness. Let's sing together here the bridge. Let my life be to you a symphony. All my days, every single breath I breathe, singing out holy, holy today with purpose of heart today. Let's purpose in our heart. Our life will be a symphony for Jesus from this day forward. All our days, purpose of heart to live for Jesus. I've got my three-month purpose. I've got my one-year purpose. I've got my five-year purpose. I've got my 50-year purpose to live for Jesus. All my days, every single breath I breathe, I want to live a life that's singing out holy, holy. Maybe you would even feel like to lift your hands up today as we sing this bridge of purpose today. Johnny, lead us in that bridge. Amen. Well, we'll end there today. Just, Lord bless you guys. Invite you out to Proverbs in the Park Wednesday night. So much fun, you guys. We're having each of the elders and elder candidates share these Wednesday nights. Perry shared this last week. It was epic, Perry's first sermon. It's on our YouTube channel. You guys got to listen to Perry. Ken Curvin sharing, Chris sharing. Uh, man, excited this week. Great food, 6 p.m. at Castle Park, Ochico Creek Park. Uh, it was just so neat. It was, you know, oh, it was going to be too hot. And then we got there, and then it's smoky and windy. We thought people were going to get impaled by tree branches falling out. We had to move the whole party. Um, and then just, I don't know when it happened. Somehow it was like the Lord was moving through Perry, you know. And it just, like, was just a beautiful night. Uh, out there. So don't miss out Proverbs in the park. That'd be a great way to purpose in your life to be living for the Lord. Um, and the fair is this week. Lots of kids from the church have animals down at the fair. Invite you down uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Come on down to the fair and support all the kids in the church that have animals. Lots of fun down there. But uh, Lord bless you guys. Have a great uh, Sunday afternoon.